Good morning. Yes, I have a box of tissues with me in the pulpit. I apologize in advance. Um, woke up with a cold yesterday, and so my voice may not be quite what you expect, and I may be blowing my nose during the sermon, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, go ahead, if you, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> We're going to be in chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, if you have a, don't have a Bible with you, there's, there's a black, or some of them are blue, pew Bible, probably in front of you. It's on page 811 that our text starts. Chapter 6, that's the big number. We're going to be in verses 25 through 34. Those are the small numbers. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible at home, you are welcome to take that Bible with you. <clears throat> Probably most of you in here have heard of George Mueller. George Mueller was a, a famous evangelist and missionary who in Bristol, England in the early 1800s opened basically an orphan ministry. There were thousands of orphans across England that didn't have anybody to care for them. And in the world in the early 1800s was very different towards orphaned children than it is now. Uh, and what's so amazing about Mueller's story is that his life and his ministry is full of these accounts of his unbelievable trusting in God and God, in his providence, miraculously providing for George Mueller and for the many orphans that he cared for. I don't know if you've never read George Mueller's biography, I, rec I recommend you go pick it up. It's, you don't typically get homework assignments at the beginning of a sermon, but, but write it down. Read his biography. It's phenomenally encouraging. It's one of those Christian biographies that really blesses you uh, and encourages you. One example of the kind of story that his life was just full of uh, is that one morning in, in England with this orphanage full of thousands of children, uh, they wake up and realize there's no food in the entire orphanage. And this was not an unusual thing. This actually happened quite often because the entire operation was just run on charitable donations. And so the house mother says to, to Mueller, hey, there's no food. And he says, all right, well, go ahead and get the first 300 children here that, that need to eat in the dining room, sitting down at the table, and I want you to, to pray. And so they did. They sat down and they prayed and they thanked God for their food that day. And there's nothing in their, in their pantry. They have, they, have, they have nothing. So a little time goes by, and there's a knock at the door. And it's the town baker. And he says, you know, I was woken up in the middle of the night just with this overwhelming urge to get up and bake bread because I knew you'd need some. And so he'd baked, you know, dozens of loaves of bread, and he brought it and gave it to, to Mueller in the orphanage. And he leaves, and a minute goes by, and there's another knock at the door, and it's the milkman. And the milkman says, hey, my cart uh, has broken down in front of your orphanage, and it's going to take so long to get somebody here to fix the wheel that the milk's going to go bad. So do you guys need like 10 jugs of milk? And so the, the children that morning had bread and milk, and they were full, and they were happy. And again, this is just one of the many examples of the miracles of God's provision for these children that Mueller's life story is just full of. So I wonder, how would you have handled that situation? Would you have sat 300 orphans down knowing you had no food and said, all right, kids, pray for your food? Or would you have been anxious? 
Would you have been worried about how God would have provided for your food? Well, in our text this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on exactly that, on anxiety. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching, this is the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. He's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been talking about what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom. And he's made it very clear that you can either live like a member of the kingdom or you can live like someone who's of the world, worshiping and serving God or worshiping and serving idols. And so here in this text, we're going to see Jesus is connecting the concept of anxiety to this same two ways of living. And his point is basically this. He's saying that anxiety, worry, is incompatible with kingdom membership. So we're going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray for us. Chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you to meet our needs. We know that you love us and care for us. And so we ask for your help right now. Lord, I need your help to preach this sermon. And we all need your help to hear it, to understand it, and to have it applied to our hearts. So we pray you'd be with us in a special way right now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to have five points for this sermon for you note takers. Uh, Five points. Point number one, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Point number two through four are some of the main reasons Jesus gives us to not be anxious. So point number two, because God loves you. Point number three, because it's foolish. Point number four, because God will provide for you. And point number five, because life is more than food and clothing. If you didn't get those, I'm going to repeat them as we go. But point number one is don't be anxious. Jesus' command here, do not be anxious, is repeated three times. That's a good indication that this is something he wants us to know. It's important. But that doesn't mean we're going to understand what the word anxious means. What is Jesus talking about? And I think there's... 
actually a real danger here of us misunderstanding Jesus completely. In large part because the way we use the word anxiety in our modern culture is not the way the Bible talks about anxiety. So I'm going to take a moment just up front to define this. Uh, Anxiety or worry, and I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, they both come from a root word that means basically to strangle. You all know what that feeling is, right? That, that lump in your throat, that the, the fear welling up in you, that, that uneasiness that causes your, your throat to tighten. That's where we get our understanding of anxiety from. And that fear is, that, that feeling, that's something we've all experienced. We know it leads to that restlessness, to that elevated heart rate, When you feel this feeling, you tend to not sleep very well. You have trouble focusing and concentrating. You're a little more short with your kids or your wife or your friends. That's the part of anxiety that I think we all understand. I mean, I I feel that. I feel that regularly. So I want you to know, in some sense, I'm preaching this sermon to myself, and you guys are just here along for the ride. But anxiety is not merely a feeling. That's the point I want to get across. It's not just that feeling. In our modern world, that's all it is. Anxiety is just a bad feeling. And we treat it, that feeling, like a medical condition. Meaning, it's just something that happens to you. that You can't control. Our culture likes to view anxiety sort of like we think about allergies. So, for example, I have a peanut allergy. And there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I can't will it away. I was, bo- I was born with this thing, and I, I eat peanuts, I get sick. And if we think of anxiety like a feeling that just comes upon you that you can't do anything about, listening to Jesus say, do not be anxious, doesn't make any sense. It would be like he was telling me, like, hey, do not be allergic to Reese's Pieces. It's, it doesn't make sense. So I want you to understand that's not what Jesus means by anxiety. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? This is the voice of the anxious person. And so there's two things I want you to see about the way Jesus is describing worry here. Number one, he's showing us it's not just a feeling. It's, it's, anxiety can certainly be accompanied by strong feelings. We know that. But he's saying that it's something else. The Greek word he actually uses here. It literally means a distracted mind. It's a mind that is actively occupied by a type of self-talk that denies the loving providence of God. It's not passive. It's an internal dialogue of doubt. Worry is like a, it's like a heretical sermon that we're preaching to ourselves in our heads. And so we should have no trouble seeing why Jesus would would be right to tell us to stop doing this thing. Here's a basic definition of anxiety that we can use for the rest of this sermon. Anxiety is a desire for a future thing. And it's an over-concern that you won't get it. Anxiety is a desire for a future thing. And it's an over-concern that you won't get it. This definition kind of helps us see something else I want you to understand about the way the Bible talks about worry. 
This is important. It's an over-concern. Over-concern. And what that means is that there's a kind of concern that's not sinfully anxious. There are good concerns. There are godly concerns. There's, there's all sorts of things you ought to be concerned about. And that concern can lead to all kinds of good outcomes. Planning, foresight. There's wisdom in being concerned about your future if it leads you to be able to better provide for your family. There's wisdom in being concerned about things if it leads you to prayer. This is the kind of godly concern that we see Paul talking about, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, if you want to flip over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Paul says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here Paul's talking about a, a kind of godly anxiety, a good anxiety that all pastors feel for their flock. Right? We're concerned as your pastors for your souls, but we don't know what the, the, the ultimate outcome is going to be for you. We don't see that yet. We long to see it and we hope. And yet that concern that we have is a desire for a future state that's not yet realized. That's a good godly concern. So when does concern become over-concern? When does godly concern become sinful anxiety? Well, remember that all through this Sermon on the Mount, up to this point in verse 25, Jesus is comparing what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. So here's the distinction. Your concern becomes over-concern. It becomes anxious worry and sin. When you become so concerned with the things of this world that you stop being concerned with God's kingdom. You stop seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Seeking God's kingdom and his, and his righteousness. Look, look at our text there. This is part of what God tells us it looks like to be a Christian. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is in contrast to the Gentile of verse 32 who's worrying, who's anxious for where his food and drink are going to come from. What does that mean to seek the kingdom? Well, it means prioritizing God's glory over everything else. It means being concerned for obeying him, even when it costs something. It means living like a Christian even when it's inconvenient or hard. That's where our concern ought to be. That's where our priority ought to be. The Gentiles, they seek after the things of this world. Remember, the the Gentile there in verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. This is the voice of the pagan. This is the one for whom the kingdom, he's so concerned about the kingdom of earth, the things of this world, that he can't see. His concern should be for the the kingdom of heaven, for the things of God. Godly concern becomes sinful anxiety when our minds become distracted from this kingdom of heaven. And that brings us to our next series of points here, which is the reasons Jesus gives us for why we shouldn't be anxious, for why we shouldn't become distracted by the things of this world, and why we should have instead concern for the kingdom of God. Point number two, don't be anxious Because God loves you. 
Don't be anxious because God loves you. I don't know about you, but when I first read this text, the first thing that I realized was just how poorly I'm obeying Jesus. Because I worry. Now, you may not worry where your next meal is going to come from, but I bet you worry about your grocery bill. You may not worry about where you're going to sleep when it gets cold outside, but I bet you worry about interest rates. Not to mention medical tests and retirement and bank accounts and all the many things that we could be worried about. The list goes on. But Jesus tells us that the antidote to all these things is knowing that God loves you. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. You could could translate this, observe. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asks, are you not of more value than they? This is one of Jesus' how much more arguments. He's pointing to something that we already know. We know God loves us, but he's using a contrast here in this rhetorical question to show us the magnitude, the extent of God's love for us. He says God loves the birds enough to feed them. Birds, right? Birds are disgusting, amen? (laughs) Think about it. Pigeons, seagulls, those little restaurant birds that hop around under your table trying to get your food when you drop crumbs on the ground, they're gross, I think if we could all get together and vote on one group of animals that we would be okay with starving to death, it would be birds. Maybe it's just me. All right. My point is, my point is, is that if God loves these little creatures enough to provide for them, to give them the food they need, of course he's going to love you enough to provide for your needs. You, an image bearer, his beloved child. He says the same thing with an illustration of the lilies in verse 30. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This grass of the field, these lilies, this is just wild plants. This is is stuff that's going to be cut and gathered and burned in some farmer's oven, or eaten by bugs, or trampled by children. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But Jesus is saying, God's concern, the extent of his concern, even for this little plant, is such that he clothes it with radiant flowers. Colors that that rival the gowns of Solomon when he was in all his glory, in his heyday. But this is how much God cares about this little plant. If you can see the difference between an image bearer of God, a living, breathing human being, and a house plant, then you see the difference between how much God loves you and loves the lilies of the field. And so, of course, he's going to meet your needs. Now, even the fact that Jesus is taking the time to explain this to us shows his love for us. I mean, Jesus could just say, hey, stop being anxious. Knock it off. But he doesn't do that. He says, do not be anxious. And then he holds our hand and he walks us through the why. He helps us to see why we shouldn't be worrying. He wants us to stop worrying Because he knows that worrying leads to suffering. It's a miserable state to be in. He loves us. And so he wants us to stop being anxious. He even acknowledges 
that there's things in this world that it would seem very sensible to be worried about. Look at the end of our text. Verse 34, they're not, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is saying every day is going to bring troubles of its own. Focus on these troubles today. He's not discounting the fact that they're there. He's not acting like there's nothing to be troubling to us. All he's saying is, don't be overly concerned about these worldly troubles because your Father in heaven loves you. So here's a question for us. Do you worry? Of course you do. Do you suffer from anxiety? I want you to know that the problem of your anxiety is not a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's a heart problem. It's a sin problem. It's the sin of unbelief. You're worried because you don't believe that God loves you the way he says he does. That might be a bit of a stretch. So let me help you see that. I may ask you like, hey, I see that you, you look a little upset. Are you worried about something? You might tell me, I lost my job today. And I'm worried about how I'm going to provide for my family. Well, imagine that Jesus himself could come down to earth in the flesh and stand in front of you and tell you, hey, I've got a job lined up for you. You don't know about this job. You don't even know about this company. You could never have seen this coming. But I have a job lined up for you that's going to allow you to provide for your family. It may not be in the timing you want or the timing you'd expect, but I'm I'm going to make sure it happens. Well, if he could do that, would you be worried anymore? Of course not. But he's basically telling us that exact same thing in the Bible. He's telling us, don't be anxious because I will provide for you. And so what I want you to see is that if you're anxious, you're not trusting God. And it's that distrust that we feel that's rooted in our disbelief over how much God loves us. So what do we do about that? Well, we could focus on the feeling. That's what the world would tell us, right? I feel anxious. So let me focus on that feeling. Let me treat that feeling. Let me try and distract myself from all these thoughts in my head with scrolling through social media or playing video games or even something healthy like exercise. But that way I can just, I can suppress it. Or maybe I can numb my feeling through alcohol. Right? Or maybe, maybe I can just start taking a pharmaceutical, some product that, that suppresses my central nervous system and makes that feeling dull so it doesn't hurt so much. These are the ways that the world teaches us to deal with anxiety. I, I could teach a master class on this. I've tried all of them. And you know what? They kind of work for a minute. But you're really just treating the symptom. You're not treating the problem. And so all of these things ultimately lead to your anxiety getting worse. If that's where you stop, and and believe me, pharmaceuticals, they can have a place in helping people overcome anxiety. There is a, a time and a place that that could be useful. But if you stop there, you're not treating the disease, which is your unbelief. When we see anxiety as sinful unbelief, it allows us to kill it. And the best way to deal with this is to just focus on God's love, to meditate on the love of God, that the love God has for you, his church. And we see that the most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, do we not? Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I like that I'm hearing Bibles, pages flipping. 1 
go there. <clears throat> In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God. We rebelled against him. And yet while we were still his enemies, he sent his son, Jesus, to suffer and die on a cross, to bear the justice and the wrath of God that our sins deserved in our place. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him, you get the free gift of his righteousness. And you get the gift of eternal life with God forever. That's love. That's what love looks like. Paul asks in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Allow me to give you the, the Russell translation of this. You think God loves you enough to send his son to die on a cross for you, but not enough to put food on your table? Or to make sure that you have a job? Or to make sure that you're clothed and you have a roof over your head? Does that sound foolish? It should. When we say that way, it is foolish. And this is because unbelief is always foolish. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning. Praise God. I'm glad you're here. But understand that I'm preaching a sermon that is to Christians because Jesus was teaching these truths to Christians. And there's a sense in which this sermon is not for you, at least not in the way that you think. Because if you're not a Christian, you have a great deal of reasons to be worried. You're not looking forward to an eternity with the God who loves you and died for you and who wants to redeem you through the blood of his son Jesus. You're looking forward to paying the price for your own sins in hell for eternity. But this sermon is for you because that offer of being made right with God through the blood of his son is for you this morning, a free gift of God. And all you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ to receive it. If you want to know more about what that looks like, about what it would look like for you to follow Jesus, just when, you, when this sermon is over, look around. Find somebody next to you who's a member of this church and ask them. Come find me at the end of the sermon. We can talk more about that. Back to what I was saying. Unbelief is foolish. It's the fool in his heart who says... There is no God. That's what scripture tells us. But it's also the fool in his heart who says, Christ died for me, but God doesn't love me enough for me to trust him with my future. And that brings us to our next point. Point number three. Don't be anxious because it's foolish. Look here at verse 27. Flip back over to Matthew if you are still in 1 John. <clears throat> verse 27 Jesus is asking us a rhetorical question. Of course, rhetorical questions are questions you ask when you know that the person you're asking knows the answer. Parents, you know this one. 
You ask your children, do we bite our sister? No, we know the answer. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer is obviously none of us. Right? Anxiety is foolish because it accomplishes nothing. Being worried about your future is kind of like running on a treadmill. Like it'll make you sweaty and tired and get your heart rate up, but you don't go anywhere. It does nothing. It's actually worse than that. Right? Because, I mean, a treadmill, it's exercise. It's kind of good for you. Anxiety is worse than that because anxiety will almost always work against the thing that we're worried about having. And so think about it. You're worried about your life. You're anxious that you're not going to live a long life. You're worried about death. That anxiety is working against you. That can actually shorten your lifespan to be worried about that. Parents, you see the same principle in parenting. If you are anxious about the safety of your children, so anxious, in fact, that you, you determine you're going to keep them from any and every risk, you never let them climb up high. You know, never let them have sharp objects. Right? Don't let them play in the dirt and the mud. Don't let them get exposed to germs. Well, guess what? Your children become incredibly fragile. And they become less safe. This is, this, this is true of, of all of life. Right? This is Jesus appealing to common sense. He's saying, stop worrying because it won't help. It's futile. It does nothing. But Jesus isn't saying this to us in like a mocking tone, which, which you might hear. He's saying this again because he doesn't want us to suffer the effects of worry. He's saying it so that we might turn to him in prayer. See, prayer is the primary way that we kill the unbelief that leads to anxiety. It stops that impulse that we have to worry over the future. So if worry is a distracted mind that's concerned about this earth and not concerned about the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness, well, prayer is a refocusing of our minds on those things we ought to be concerned about. And we know this is true. The anxious man is a prayerless man. Even the world around us sees this. When you get home, get on Google, just search anxiety, and prayer. You'll find all kinds of studies from like secular sociologists who see the link between praying and a reduction in anxiety and depression. They don't know why it works, right? They don't understand it, but even they can see it. Well, we understand it. Here's why it works. It's because when we turn to God in prayer, we're reminding ourselves of our utter dependence on him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, which our sister Amber read for us earlier. Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What I want you to see here is that the peace of God doesn't come from God answering our requests in the way that we hope that he does. Do you see that? The peace of God here in this verse comes merely from the act of turning to God in prayer. It's letting us, when we pray to God, we allow ourselves to let go of that sense of control that we have over the future. 
So when you're worried, pray. And that's the application here. You, know, you don't need a, a seminary degree to figure that one out. When you're worried, pray. But there's another thing about worry that makes us look foolish that I want you to see. Look at verse 32 again. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus says the Gentiles seek, meaning they're actively striving for their material needs. But this striving, this seeking, outwardly, their behavior that we see reflects their inward understanding of God. Remember that in rejecting the true God, that the pagans of the world act like fools. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Right? They exchanged the glory of the invisible God for man-made images and idols that they worship. And this, is what, this is what anxiety is. It's making idols of whatever it is we're hoping in and trusting in that isn't God. Remember I told you we can treat anxiety all day long with distractions and video games or alcohol or pills. Whatever, whatever you're using that's not ultimately God, that is an idol. And that exposes you and me, when I do it, as fools. You see, the pagans believed in gods that were like people. Right? They're, they're prone to mood swings, erratic behavior. Right? You have to go to them and you have to explain to them the things you need and kind of manipulate them to give you the things you want. That's not how our God is. Our God already knows what we need when we go to him. Jesus says that here. He says it earlier in this chapter too when he's teaching us to pray. In verse 7, chapter 6, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And they think their God needs to hear all of those many words in order to understand what they need. Our God already knows what we need. So when you, Christian, show fear and anxiety and distrust in bad circumstances when when the troubles of your day lead you to act like act like lead you to act like that i want you to understand you look like a pagan you look like a gentile and i know this cuz i do it not long ago um my wife Catherine was in the hospital and pretty much every time she's in the hospital i worry and i start acting in my mind like God doesn't know what she needs. And even if he does, I'm, I can't trust him to give her what she needs. And, and so I become anxious. And at one point in particular, we had a nurse practitioner come into my wife's room, and we'd been dealing with a lot of things that had gone wrong in her care. And I was frustrated, and I was anxious, and I was not trusting the Lord. And I let her have it. I vented I was like, hey, here's all the things that are wrong, and these are what you need to fix, and if it doesn't get fixed, I'm going to be more upset, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, praise God, she, she took really good care of my wife, and she fixed a lot of things that were, that were wrong. And she came back the next day, and she said, hey, I wanted you to know I'm a Christian, and I've seen American Gospel, and I know you guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're laughing because at that time, and even now, like, that hurt. And it hurt because I realized, like, what a fool I must look like in front of her. Like, here I am in this documentary telling people, like, hey, you just got to trust the Lord when you're going through hard things. And then she sees me in real life, and I'm like, 
How am I going to eat? How am I going to be clothed? Where am I going to sleep? Here's the encouragement I want you to see behind this. It hasn't always gone that way. There, there have been times where my wife in particular has been able to show confidence in the Lord when, in the eyes of the world, like, that shouldn't have been possible. And when this happens, when you trust in God in the midst of terrible troubles, and the world looks at that and they think you should be worried, but you're not. They don't understand it. It doesn't look, it doesn't make sense to them, right? And they do a double take. Gentiles will do a double take. They'll look back at you and they'll say, what do you know that I don't know? Or even better, who do you know that I don't know? And this is a gift of God. This is a supernatural ability that Christians have to display peace and confidence and trust in the Lord when everybody else would be anxious. And it glorifies your Father in heaven. So seek that. Seek that gift from God. He will give you the strength to do it. This brings us to our next point. Don't be anxious because God will provide. We see this promise in the text. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. The first thing I want you to note here is that God's loving provision is linked to his chosen people. Right? So he's saying, not that this is a general promise to all of humankind, but his chosen people who are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, those are the ones that he's going to provide for. Second thing I want you to know is that this is a genuine promise. This is a real promise. And it's a promise that is woven all throughout Scripture. Right? So in the garden, Adam and Eve, God provides for their needs through the garden. Even when they sinned against him, he provides for them. What's the first thing he does? He gives them skins to cover their nakedness. He does that. He provides for them. When a terrible famine comes to the whole Middle East at a time when, when Jacob and his sons are starving, he uses Joseph in Egypt to store food up that they might be preserved. And when God calls Israel out of Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness, grumbling against God because they don't have food, what does God do? He causes manna to rain down from heaven so that they will have the food they need. When they're thirsty, he causes water to miraculously spring from a rock so that they can drink. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus, when he leads the multitudes out into the wilderness, teaching them. And then at the end of the day, they have nowhere to go. They have no food. What does he do? He takes bread and he takes fish and he multiplies it so that they would be fed. I'm going through these examples because I want to beat it into your head that this is who God is. God loves his chosen people. He's always been this way. And he always provides for their needs. Now maybe you're sitting here listening to this and you're thinking, this is all really interesting. It's good to know. Like maybe I'll need something someday. But I got everything I want. I've never gone hungry. Right? God's taken care of me. I have an abundance the only meals I've ever skipped are the ones that I skipped on purpose when I was following like a fad diet. Well, I want you to know this sermon is for you. And in fact, this sermon is especially for you. Because if, 
if God's providing for you that way, you ought to praise him for it. Or you may think, I have a good job. I'm working hard. I'm providing for my family. But who do you think has given you the ability and the opportunity and the skills to be able to do that job? That's God. God is providing for you through those things. And you ought to praise him for it. Moreover, if you have an abundance, you have an extra amount that you, is beyond what you even need, understand that one of the primary ways that God provides for people who need things is through his people. God uses and gives abundantly to some of us so that he might be glorified when we share that abundance with others. Uh, think of Acts chapter 11. Uh, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. This is in verses 29 and 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here in Acts, we see an example of this exact thing. The church is collecting from their abundance and they're sending that money to Judea where there's a famine, where there are brothers and sisters who are starving because they don't have enough money to buy food. We saw this in the text our sister Amber read. Right, where Paul had needs, and those needs were met by the giving of the church, and he thanks them for it. In fact, the text that says, and my God will supply your every need, it comes after Paul has acknowledged that they have sought first his needs, that they've given out of their abundance to provide for him. Right, so what we see here is a very basic principle that in people who seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. God says he's going to add these things to them. That your, your needs will be taken care of. But he does this because your brothers and sisters around you are also seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And that looks often like liquidating your earthly treasure and giving it to those who need around you. So here's some just basic diagnostic questions for us. Things to think about and ask ourselves in light of this truth. Do you know the members of this church well enough to sense when they might be in need? It's not the kind of thing you know when you just see somebody once a week on a Sunday in passing. Do you know what their actual needs might be, the people in this church that have them? Do you assume what their needs are or do you talk to them and find out what they actually need? Because it may not be what you think. Do you have a particular gift or a possession that God has blessed you with, that you could use to love others in the church when they might need it for a season. Here's a really simple one. Have you contributed to our food pantry lately? We use that food all the time to give to people in this community in need. And then finally, are you contributing financially to the ministry of the church? Because one of the primary things that that contribution goes to is to our benevolence fund. And we want to have a robust benevolence fund so that when needs arise within the community here, within the life of our church, we can meet those needs quickly. It's my prayer that we would all be more like the church in Acts chapter 2, where all who believed gathered together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's my prayer. Next point, do not be anxious because life is more than food and clothes. And this is our last point. God provides for our needs, amen? 
We've seen it over and over. We've been talking about it this morning. But what happens when he doesn't? All right, that's, that's sort of the elephant in the room. What happens when he doesn't? There, this, this text is not promising that Christians won't die. There are Christians who have starved to death. There are Christians who have frozen to death because they didn't have enough clothes, they didn't have a place to sleep. This verse can't be promising that that would never happen. Most of you know my wife Catherine is facing something similar to this. She's dependent on a central catheter in her chest to get all of her food and all of her hydration. And they can't keep giving her those. She's running out of them. And when she doesn't have another one, which may be very soon, she faces the very real possibility of starving to death. So how do we make sense of this? How do we take our experience in this world and put it together with Jesus' promise that he's going to give us all the things we need for life? I think one of the keys to, to making sense of this is in verse 25. Jesus asks us, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What he's pointing out with this question is that there's something more to life than just staying clothed and fed. Living is not the same thing as staying alive. That's what he's pointing out. Living is not the same thing as staying alive. For the Gentiles, staying alive, remember, that's the whole point of life. That's, you seek your needs. You, you live to have your needs met. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's the Gentile mantra. But for the Christian, food and clothing are just a means to an end. But clothes, they keep our bodies warm so that we can live. Food gives us energy so that we can live. Right? All these things are... They're supplying us with the ability to live so that we can live for God's glory and to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. It means, again, remember, it means prioritizing, being concerned for God's glory, for his kingdom over everything else. Even when it costs something and even when it's hard. When you understand that, when you see that, that our material needs are just a means to an end. When you see the order that Jesus says it, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We understand that sometimes seeking the kingdom and glorifying God, living for him, may mean suffering. It may even mean suffering to the point of death. The Bible calls this Suffering for righteousness' sake. We see Peter use that phrase in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, suffering for righteousness' sake. And he says that it's a blessing. I think we also see the basis for this idea in something that Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. I mentioned this verse already. Uh, 4 verse 19, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours, according to the riches in glory, excuse me, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So what I want you to understand is that if God measured our needs against what would allow us to survive, then he'd never allow a Christian to starve or freeze to death or, or even to be hungry. But that's not how God measures our needs. God measures our needs 
as I just read, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This means that we will get everything we need. We'll get everything that we need. Everything will be given to us that we need in order to fulfill God's will and in order to glorify him most fully. Even if that means that the thing that we get is death. When I think about my own family's situation, I'm reminded again of George Mueller. Mueller's wife died of rheumatic fever. And the last scripture that he read to her as she died was Psalm 8411, which says this, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Mueller later recalled, looking back on his wife's death, excuse me, and he described how he found the strength to get through that. And this is what he wrote. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it's really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. Did you follow Mueller's logic there? He's saying, if I really needed my wife, God would give her back to me. He'd raise her from the dead. But if what I really need, what I really need for the sake of the kingdom and righteousness, for the sake of God's glory, is for her to be taken away. And God's giving me what I need. Praise God. You see, when we trust that God loves us, and when we recognize that seeking his kingdom first is far better than seeking any material thing that might aid in our earthly survival, then it becomes possible for us to believe that what we need and what we might even ask God for if we knew everything he knew is to starve to death. It's a possibility. We'd starve to death for his glory. And we'd thank him for it. Do you see how this has to be supernatural? This is not a thing you can just sort of will yourself to feel. This is a kind of trust in God. This is a level of belief in the goodness and the love of God that he has to do in us. That's the point I want to end on here. I can read Mueller's words. I can understand them. I can think about applying his thinking to my own situation. I think about my own precious wife. and I think about saying these things. I can do that in my head, but I can't feel it. Not yet. Why is that? It's because of what Jesus says in in the Sermon on the Mount just a few verses earlier. It's because 
God gives us our daily bread. He's giving us what we need for the troubles of the day that we're in. And that includes our supply of faith. That includes our trust in him. He doesn't give you all at once every bit of faith you're ever going to need for every trouble. Instead, he asks you to turn to him each day and ask for what you need. And that's what he gives you. No more, no less. It's the same way that God provides for our material needs. Know that the worst thing that God will ever ask you to endure, he will also provide you with a measure of faith to get through that thing. Not now, when it happens. So the last little point of application I want to leave you all with is this. Just practice this. While the times are easy for you, practice this. When your bank account's full, when you have food in the refrigerator, when everybody's healthy, practice turning to God in prayer and trusting him. Practice holding everything you have loosely and reminding yourself that God may ask you to go without. The things you think you need are not necessarily the things that God knows you need. Practice seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And ultimately remember that our lives are more than food and clothes. It's it's utterly foolish to be anxious about the future. Remember, brothers and sisters, that God will provide for you. And remember that he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promise to add to us all the things that we need. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is what we ultimately need. Lord, we pray that you would help us to marinate on these truths. We pray that they would change us in the way we view our lives and this world. Help us to be concerned with your kingdom and with your righteousness and help us to seek these things first. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Church.